chapter 12. What comes first, the body or individuals? The body first. I want to start this chapter with, yes, another question. When God looks down on us as his people, how does he view his church? Does he view her through the lens of a body first, or does he view her through the lens of individuals? What do we think? Does it even matter? Is there a divine order? How does God principally see us as a group of individuals or as one body? You may ask, is there any real relevance to this question? I believe and carry a very strong conviction that yes, it absolutely matters how God sees his church and how that we come to see things from his perspective. The reason for this is because there is a massive outworking that takes place depending on the conviction we hold to. What we fundamentally believe to be the true answer to this question will determine so many things. It will determine how we view the scriptures. It will determine how we approach the scriptures. It will determine our commitment to his plans and purposes for his church. It will determine our now and our future. It will determine our inheritance in him. It will literally determine whether we live for him a selfless life or whether we are still living for ourselves today, a selfish and self-centered life. It will determine whether we are a people who truly seek first his kingdom and righteousness, or whether we are our own empire builders, more concerned with our individual lives and asking God to bless our lives that are self-focused and self-consumed. We will be consumed with asking God to give us the desires of our hearts, yes, our desires and not his desires because we look through the lens of the individual and not the body. It becomes all-consuming and all about me and my ministry, and this is a recipe for disaster. Seeing the church through a body lens first will put the God of self to death because you realize that you need to be committing your life to the body first and that you cannot find your true meaning and purpose outside of the body. Seeing the church through an individual lens keeps self alive and well because your mindset is always focused on yourself and you judge everything and make all your decisions based around whether there will be an individual cost involved for you. Self always looks for the benefit to itself in everything. This individual lens always asks this question, God, what is your individual plan for my life? Rather than asking, God, what is your plan for your church? And how does this life you have given me fit into this big picture plan? I personally believe the question, God, what is your individual plan for my life, is ripping the body of Christ apart and causing so much disunity and fragmentation in the body, it's literally not funny. This individual lens is restrictive, constricted, and limited, and lives from a place of control, fear, and loss. It trusts its own ability to achieve everything. When something greater is asked or required of it than it can give, it always fails and can never be found living for this greater reality. It always makes sure that it is taken care of first before anyone or anything else, and it can never put itself in a position where it will suffer loss. Self always needs its piece of flesh. It always assesses and judges everything through its own lens and makes its decisions based on itself and what it will mean for itself. This individual lens mindset always puts its own wants, needs, and desires ahead of God and others. You may say, but without individuals, you can never have a body. 
I absolutely agree with this. But this doesn't alter the fact that when God created us as his people, his intent from the beginning was always that he saw a body made up of individuals interdependent on one another. He saw a body of people abandoning their lives to see the building of his people, a temple established on the earth. Being wholeheartedly committed to being and becoming an active part of his body. We talk about being part of the body, and yet my experience teaches me that many live as individuals. Being loosely connected to a body by a physical appearance at a Sunday gathering, but never really being wholeheartedly committed to being an active part of a body slash family and serving the body family with their gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, just also is Christ. Notice the divine order in which the words are written. For even as the body is one and yet has many members. The scripture then again clearly defines the divine order. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. One body, one body, one body. Are we as his followers committing our lives to this divine design of being wholeheartedly committed to being part of an active body that is becoming the demonstration of Christ on the earth? Or are we still running in an individualistic lane, more consumed and concerned with ourselves? Are we living as the family of God? Are we truly a part of an actively present and becoming the true spiritual family where the great commandment defines everything? We are called firstly to be communal in heart. We are called to be his family on the earth, and our challenge is to live this truth out. Let's continue to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 to 27. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. This passage of scripture couldn't be more clear on how the church is to be and function, that we are all called to function as one body, and commit our lives to being actively part of the body. 
the lens of individualism. If this passage is so clear, why is it that so many followers live as individuals? This individual mindset and culture can be broken into two parts. You get the followers who are living to build their own lives and live for themselves and their desires, the white picket fence follower. These followers are, as I say, consumed with building their own empires and are very casual in their relationship with Christ, if in fact they even have one at all. The second part of the individual culture and mindset is when you get the followers who just want their own individual ministries. All these people are really interested in is running as individuals and in individual lanes. They want to know what their gift or gifts are, but they are only interested in knowing this for achieving their own personal individual ministry goals. They are not interested in their gift of being part of the bigger picture, but rather how it serves them. They want to serve God all right, but it is through this individualistic lens or filter. They serve when it suits them and when it benefits them. They are unable to serve unconditionally because of the mindset and culture they carry. Ultimately, they are serving themselves and only serve to benefit themselves, and they do this in the name of Jesus. They are committed, but they are not surrendered. Unfortunately, within the body of Christ, these two positions are a common reality. Both these cultures within God's people have a consumeristic value and belief system. This belief and value system is based around being served rather than I exist to serve. This consumeristic mindset I liken to what I call having a gym membership mentality. I pay my gym membership fees and I expect the gym I attend to provide a service and serve me. I expect everything to be to my liking and expect everything to be on tap. The gym gear better be the latest and the greatest and the best gear available. The gym has to be comfortable for me and not too far from where I live. The gym is not allowed to change anything because I like what I have found and I've created for myself the perfect gym. If they do change anything, then I have to change gyms. The gym has personal trainers who are experienced and knowledgeable in the areas of fitness and they are able to demonstrate what a fit and in-shape person looks like. But I still believe I know more than them and really have no need for them. I act like this because I have become the expert in fitness, even though I am not able to demonstrate the same fitness level or look anything like the personal trainers. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to. Titus 1, 10 to 16. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The challenge for the church is making sure she flows in the divine order that God gives to his church. As in the previous chapter, God gives the patterns to which he builds his people and to which his purposes and plans flow. 
Just like we see a clear functioning order and ranking in the gifts for the building up of the church, we see God clearly defining his perspective in the body first and individuals second, even though individuals are what make up a healthy body. Both parts are in the picture, but there is a divine order to which flows first and second. The prayer of oneness. I believe Jesus' prayer in the garden clearly cements and reinforces God's position on the question of the body or individuals first. Let's have a look at this prayer. John 17, 20-23 I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus' heart cry and prayer is that his present disciples would be one and that all those who would come to believe and follow him through their word would become this people of oneness. I find it incredible that Jesus looked into the future and saw you and me today and he prayed for us that we would be these people of oneness, oneness in spirit with him and his father. Maybe Jesus knew something about the heart of man. Did we capture that? Jesus is praying for you and me. Maybe he understood how difficult it would be for you and I to put ourselves aside and live for him and his ways. And this is why God is praying for his people and I in you that they also may be in us. What an incredible promise that the body of Christ would be in Christ and his father, that we would be in perfect union with Christ and his father because of the Holy Spirit that we would all abide in him and in so doing have much fruit of the Spirit produced in us. The outcome of this work is nothing short of breathtaking and quite mind-blowing, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Does the world believe that God sent Jesus into the world because of the oneness God's people are in and living from? How can the church actually become this church if everyone is living for themselves and trying to discover their own individual purposes and plans with God? Dying to our own individual plans and dreams. As I have said and will continue to say, we as his people are not to be concerned with finding our purpose, our plans or our dreams, but we are to be devoted to seeking God's purpose and plans for us as a people, a body. And then we will find our individual role and how this role is outworked within his picture. This requires all of us to come into the revealed position of God that allows us to see how he sees the church and how he longs to see his body functioning well on the earth, being built by the sword of his spirit, the word of God, the truth, Jesus Christ. The church will only ever come into this mature state when it is living from this position of oneness with her creator. We are to be living our lives for the body. We are to be living to seeing the body of Christ become the body of Christ because we have all let go of the individual pursuit of our own lives. The position of I cannot exist in the body. We must all die to the I nature that lives in us and is so powerful and wants and desires its own way. The body of Christ becoming one in spirit and living from the position of oneness in spirit starts from each follower of Jesus being one and growing in oneness with him. 
If we are not growing in our spiritual oneness with Christ, then we will not be in oneness with one another to any significant measure that is tangible and demonstrated. Too many followers of Jesus think they need to get to know people and their lives before they can have oneness of spirit with them. The focus is all wrong. It's our relationship with Christ that forms and establishes oneness with our brothers and sisters, not the formation of physical relationships with others. We say things like, I have to wait until I get to know someone before I can share with them and be vulnerable. Once again, this is back to front. The body becoming one in spirit starts the body being one with Christ. When we have oneness with Christ, we are set free from the fear of man. We are free to share intimately without needing an intimate, trusting relationship with a person or people. We will start to see a body that is becoming complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit intent on one purpose, which Philippians 2.2 declares. Oneness in spirit starts with each of us as individuals being committed and wholeheartedly devoted to allowing Jesus to be our Lord and by giving him full rights to our lives to change and transform us. It is from this process that we start to see that the body first is God's way and pattern. The marriage covenant is designed to bring oneness into the body. The second environment for the spiritual oneness to be formed and established is within the marriage covenant that God has given us between a man and a woman. For too long, the church has taught the primary purpose of marriage is for the production of children, so we grow and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I'm not saying this isn't one of the purposes of marriage, but it is not the primary purpose. Where do you start to discover the primary purpose of marriage? You start with the first mentioned principle. This is where the very first time a particular truth is mentioned, it defines the context for other times you see the passage of Scripture again. Genesis 2, 22 to 24. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You can see here how the two people are to become one. This is no mention of children or populating the earth. This is the second environment for all those who have entered into a marriage covenant for spiritual transformation of oneness and spirit, which forms the body. Now, just because we are married to our spouse does not mean we are growing in oneness of spirit with our spouse. The physical relationship between a man and a woman can be just that, physical. Yes, you both have the Holy Spirit living in you, but as far as this oneness of spirit growing and developing, there is much more to be accomplished. I remember while having a shower recently, the Holy Spirit asking me whether I see oneness in spirit in any great measure in the church, God's people. I replied, not really. He proceeded to tell me it was because it is not in many marriages. He said, the reason why you don't see the body as one in many communities is because you don't see too much spiritual oneness in marriages. If healthy families represent healthy communities, and healthy communities represent healthy cities, and healthy cities represent healthy nations, then how healthy are we at the core of family? The core of family starts with our oneness with Christ and then moves from there into every physical relationship we find ourselves in.
Just like in the church, there is a lot of conformity masquerading as unity or oneness in spirit. And this is the case with many marriages today. There is conformity, but not too much unity of spirit or oneness. What you get is two people coexisting rather than becoming one body. Couples conform to one another's patterns and desires rather than finding the spiritual life in the nitty-gritty of love and submission. How much of this order is actually being demonstrated today in Christian marriages? Because it is this order which produces oneness and spirit, I sense the Holy Spirit say, not too much. But I long to see it, for then my body would be all she is called and chosen to become. When both parties are living this truth out, oneness of the spirit is being produced. And it is this life-giving reality that children are raised up in. The oneness of spirit that is being formed and established through our one-on-one relationship with Christ and our marriages to one another is the oneness that is demonstrated in a discipleship group gathering and a Sunday gathering of the church. This is what builds the body of Christ up and has a body established on the earth as opposed to a whole lot of individuals turning up to a meeting or meetings. Now you have a body gathering that truly reflects the truth of the scriptures. Let me ask us again, what comes first, the body or the individual?